Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. In the wake of the recent protests, I've been flooded with questions from well-meaning people who are looking for advice on how to use their time, energy, and money to make the biggest impact in the fight for equality and justice in our criminal legal system. So, on Thursday, June 11th, I moderated an online panel that we called Power to the People. It was a discussion and Q&A session featuring a panel of four of the world's leading criminal legal system experts and civil rights activists. Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Marie Cullors, prison industry expert Bianca Tylek, Drug Policy Alliance Executive Director Cassandra Frederic, and civil rights lawyer Alec Karkatsanis, all of whom shared their thoughts on how each and every one of us can take action individually and collectively in the most powerful way. This went so well, and I learned so much, as did, I hope, our audience, that we decided to release the conversation here as a podcast as well. I hope you find this discussion as interesting and informative as I did. Welcome to Power to the People. This is a Zoom event that we've put together because uh, I think all of us have been getting so many questions from people who want to get involved or their kids want to get involved or their grandmother wants to get involved, whatever, and people want to help. And so I, I thought if we could put together an event where we have some of the uh, true leaders in the space, civil rights leaders, you know, people who are actually out there on the ground doing the work, um, and we can figure out how to really harness and direct some of that amazing positive energy that's being generated after these two weeks, of really revolutionary protests, then let's do that. And so um, I came up with a with a word today. I actually saw it somewhere, but I'm gonna I'm gonna steal it or I'm gonna commandeer it. I'm gonna borrow it. So I'm gonna call this this group not rather than revolutionaries. I'm gonna call you all solutionaries, um, because these are people who are out there creating, uh, innovating, and um, and putting into practice actual solutions to some of the primary problems of our age and some of the things that I believe are, are driving people to get in the streets uh, beyond what they see 
on the videos, the horrific videos that we've all seen over the last weeks and months, culminating, of course, in the disgusting uh, lynching of George Floyd that, that it seems like everyone in the world has seen now. Um, but, but it's so much more than that. And so I'm going to go ahead now and introduce our group of solutionaries, our, our amazing uh, panel of solutionaries, and I'll do it in alphabetical order. Um, so, and I'm going to, uh, what I, how we're going to do this is I'm going to do a quick introduction of everyone, and then I'm going to ask each of you to give us a couple minutes on what you're up to right now with your respective organizations. So, Patrice Cullors, unless, um, unless anyone's been living in a cave for the last seven years, uh, you probably know that Patrice is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, um, which came to be uh, in the aftermath of the uh, awful uh, murder of Trayvon Martin in 2013. And since then, Black Lives Matter has become a force um, in, in culture uh, writ large. Um, so Patrice, uh, thank you for being here. Second, of course, is Cassandra Frederic. Um, Cassandra is the uh, dynamic um, leader, executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, which I describe, and I'm a board member there, but I describe the Drug Policy Alliance as the epicenter of the war against the war on drugs. And it's so important that you're here because the war on drugs is a real driver of systemic racism in this country. And, um, and, I, and I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about all of that. Um, Alec Harakasanis is, um, what can I say? I mean, he's become sort of my mentor and personal hero in the space. Alec is the author of Usual Cruelty. Um, he is also directly responsible for tens of thousands of Americans being free today who otherwise would be in jail. And that's not hyperbole. Um, Alec is leader of Civil Rights Court. And he'll tell us about that in a minute. And Bianca Tylek. Um, Bianca uh, has become, at half my age, she's become my my mentor, even though I've probably been doing criminal justice work as long as you've been alive. But Bianca is a Harvard lawyer who has overcome her own uh, negative interactions with the criminal justice system uh, and police as a, as a young girl uh, to become a real change maker, trying to sue the profits out of prisons is probably the way I would say that. So anyway, so now let me go to each of you. Patrice, can you give us a, a little overview of what Black Lives Matter is, is up to right now? Sure. Um, thanks so much for having me, Jason, and uh, thank you everybody for joining. I'm one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter organization and movement and hashtag that started seven years ago. We have focused on uh, really a, a number of things, but one of the things has been opening up a new conversation around anti-Black racism and white supremacy and its relationship to Black people. Um, we've focused primarily on police and uh, the issues of policing in this country and our current movement is focused on defunding the police. Um, many people have seen that as a controversial slogan, but seven years ago, Black Lives Matter was a controversial slogan and Amazon is, has it um, plastered on their screen. So things change, moments change, and they change with courageous people and courageous action. And that's what we're demanding in this moment. Um, we're demanding a reevaluation of where we've prioritized our dollars, our funding and our support. Um, if we look at the continuation of incarceration, the first point of contact is usually the police. And so the police are the funnels towards jail cells and prison cells. And we have to have a real conversation around the ways in which our country has created new conditions for the police to be the most powerful governmental agency, politically, culturally, and economically. Last thing I'll say is after 33 years of being on television, COPS has been canceled. Good job, Paramount. 
uh, Paw Patrol is now being canceled. Good job, Paramount. Um, we need to unlearn the ways in which we have really been ingested propaganda around what the police do and what they are. So I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of this movement and I'm grateful to be a part of this panel. And thank you, Patrice. And I want to say there's going to be a Q&A. We're going to talk for about 30, 35 minutes as a group. And then there's going to be a 30 minute Q&A at the end. So anyone who wants to enter questions, you do it in the comments section and we will get to you as soon as we're done. Um, okay, Cassandra, Drug Policy Alliance, Executive right. Director. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Jason. So Drug Policy Alliance is a national organization working to end the criminalization associated with drug use um, and drug sales. We believe that what our drug problem is, is prohibition and that we actually need to end prohibition so that we can end the violence associated with it and actually redistribute resources to deal with addiction. Um, some of the things that we are working on right now is um, defunding the police. So most people, when you are out in the protests and you see people having tanks and the battle regalia, that's drug war money that funds that. Drug war money is funding the tanks that we see, we saw in the streets in Ferguson to the helicopters we see in the sky right now in New York City. Um, and all of that equipment is stuff that the drug war funds. And so we were excited to elevate and amplify the call that Black Lives Matter put out around defunding the police because that is the work that we've been working on anyway to demilitarize police and disrupt the funding that goes in that way. The other thing that's been so interesting about this moment and later on I'll talk about the intersection between what's happening right now and the drug war is that the DEA, which is the Drug Enforcement Agency, not only enforces the drug war, but it also is being used as a surveillance tool right now for protesters. And so they have now just used the drug war agency to now surveil protesters. Um, and folks will know, you know, we're big on history. Part of the reason the drug war was waged in the first place was to go after the anti-war left. Um, and so we're seeing this come full circle about the drug war being used as a way to um, deal with dissent. And then the thing that's really important for us and that we bring to this space is understanding that, you know, Breonna Taylor was killed in her bed because they thought she had drugs in her house, right? And so the police showed up because drugs was the thing that brought them there. When George Floyd was being killed by having the police officer's knee on his neck, one of the officers said to the crowd, that's why you don't do drugs. And so for us as DPA, we want to remove the idea that drug involvement in any way is an excuse for law enforcement to kill you. Because for me, it doesn't matter to me if there were drugs in Breonna Taylor's house or not. There is no reason for someone to be killed by the state in their bed. There is no reason if drugs are there or not. And so for us, we're really elevating and complicating the idea of if drugs serve as a justification for state-sanctioned violence. And so really elevating the role that the drug war plays in a multiplier effect to police violence in this country. Thank you, Cassandra. And Alec, um, you're up next. So Civil Rights Corps is a small nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C. that works with directly impacted people and community lawyers and organizers and civil rights attorneys and public defenders and others all over the country to try to dismantle the criminal punishment bureaucracy. I think it's really important to understand that work, to understand the context in which we're engaging in that work. This country cages human beings at a rate five times its own historical average, five to 10 times the rate of other comparable countries. We cage black people at a rate six times that of South Africa at the height of apartheid. It's within that context that things like Ferguson happened. 
know, when I showed up in Ferguson after Michael Brown's murder in 2014, the city of Ferguson averaged 3.6 arrest warrants per household. Almost all of those arrest warrants were for black people. Almost all of them were for unpaid debt to the city. We have converted our criminal legal apparatus into one that targets people of color, that targets poor people, that profits off of them, that surveils them, that cages them, that separates them from their families to the tune of tens of millions of human beings every single year. And it's this systemic brutality that is normalized. That's the systemic brutality that quote unquote good cops engage in every single day. That is what modern contemporary American policing is. It is a system that is designed to preserve distributions of wealth and property and distributions of racial supremacy and to uplift this, this concept, which has really been at the core of the evolution of modern policing and the modern criminal punishment bureaucracy, which is white supremacy. And so what we try to do in, in our own small way through litigation and advocacy and storytelling is to try to change our culture's understanding of what the police and what this entire metastasized punishment bureaucracy is. Why do we have it? What function is it serving? Who does it benefit? How does it decide what it's doing? And in this moment in particular, I want to lift up what Patrice said. I, I, I think the core thing we all need to understand is that we need to draw very clear lines now. Are we going to propose subtle, small, little tweaks to the way we talk about things so that we're going to put a camera on a cop as they brutalize the same people in the same neighborhoods? Or are we going to have conversations about why do we need cops? And why are we investing tens of billions of dollars every single year in cages and handcuffs and sirens and taters and bulletproof vests and, 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 and not in the kinds of things that our communities need to flourish? So this narrative right now in this moment of divesting from things that cause people pain and that hurt people and for which there's no evidence of any benefit and investing in the kinds of things that all of us know our communities need. Bianca, that's a perfect segue into your work. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it is. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, Bianca Tylik, um, AD at Worth Rises. Worth Rises, we're an organization that works to dismantle the prison industry and the exploitation of people touched by it. Those are both people inside as well as family on the outside. We are really striving to build a world in which no entity or individual depends on human caging or control for their wealth, operation, or livelihood. That means whether you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or a large private prison company earning $6 million a year, or you're a corrections officer earning $28,000 a year, uh, we want to ensure that there is nobody who is dependent on people being incarcerated in order to exist um, in this world or build wealth. Um, and so in large part, we're looking at ways to promote people over property and people over profit. Uh, which is something that, again, um, folks are now starting to mention as we talk about defund police. We have also been working really hard to amplify the calls made on the ground by the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as by the Movement for Black Lives, to defund police. And a lot of our work has historically touched on things like this. We work a lot on prison phone justice issues. For those who are unfamiliar with the injustice of prison phones, a phone call out of a jail in the U.S. can run as high as $25 for a 15-minute phone call. 
That is in large part because there are some big profiteers running corporations dedicated simply to exploiting people's ability to communicate with their loved ones who are incarcerated. Those uh, corporations, it should be known, are owned by big private equity firms that own some of your favorite teams. The Detroit Pistons um, are owned by the exact same person who owns the largest prison telecom company in the country. And so working on that, and part of why prison uh, phone calls are so expensive is because a portion of those rates are actually paid back in kickbacks by the corporation to jails and to sheriffs. And so those are being used to further fund the police. And so our work a lot right now in our efforts to amplify the calls on the ground to defund police to look for a radical transformational change to the system is to starve all of the different funding streams that police have and making sure that we ensure they're not going anywhere else, particularly looting our black and brown communities to fill whatever gaps are created elsewhere. Thank you, Bianca. Uh, Patrice, there's a lot of misinformation out there about what defunding the police really means. You get people coming up and saying, well, if I call 911, no one's, if I'm being robbed or something, right, and a very off chance that someone's actually being robbed, we know that a tiny percentage of 911 calls are actually for violent crime anyway, much less than 5%. But can you explain what defunding the police really means? And I'm going to ask everyone when you answer this question, if you can also talk about what can people do, whether they have time to give, whether they have money to give, whether they have a network that they can share messages with. So if you could just uh, incorporate that and over to you, Patrice. Thank you. Absolutely. First thing I'll say is check out peoplesbudgetla.com as well as the Alternatives to Incarceration report that came out of LA County. Here in Los Angeles, we have been experimenting with the idea of no police and no prisons for quite some time. We've gained a significant amount of traction in the last several years, both at the county level and at the city level. What we're talking about is truly and honestly about a reprioritization of resources. There are five things that the police are in charge of that they shouldn't be in charge of. There's a lot of things, but I start with the first five. Low hanging fruit, drug and alcohol addiction as first responders, homelessness as first responders, mental health crisis as first responders, people not having access to jobs. So people loitering and things like that, they're the first responders. And they're also in K through 12 schools. So we have to have a different conversation. Right now, we have allowed for the police to essentially be in every single part of our lives. And when I say our, I mean poor black people's lives because the world that currently exists for white affluent people is a world without police unless you call them and they show up for you. So they do the job for white affluent people. They don't do the job for poor black and brown people. So those five things can be the first things that we look at if we look at a police budget. We can look at their budget and we can say, hey, let's cross these things out. And as we're crossing them out and realizing how much money is being poured into those things, we can then reprioritize and reallocate those dollars to getting access to social workers, case managers, community interventionists, the list goes on. There are so many things in which we have divested from and have not allowed for our communities to thrive because of that divestment. There are so many programs that actually exist and doing a great job, but they cannot scale. They cannot do the things that say police do because they don't have any dollars. A budget is finite. We have to make a decision about what we are going to prioritize when it comes to a budget. 
And what the country and what our city in particular in Los Angeles has prioritized for the last 30 years is a bloated police budget and a bloated incarceration budget. Now is the time that we defund those and reprioritize. And Cassandra, that's a perfect lead into you because one of the things the Drug Policy Alliance has been fighting for is putting a stop to the low-level drug possession mm -hmm. arrests in this country. I think people would be shocked to know how many people are arrested for marijuana possession. It's considered an essential service, right? right? It stayed open during the pandemic. So can you speak on that for a minute? And then also, again, advise people how they can move forward in solidarity. Thanks, Jason. And Patrice, that's exactly right. When we think about the way that police have acted as foot soldiers to be first responders for people who struggle with addiction, they are called in for things that they have no business doing. Drug Policy Alliance is very clear that law enforcement should never be the first responder when it comes to drugs. And that's why we are actually working on decriminalizing all drugs. So removing drugs from the criminal legal system altogether. No one should be responding to it. And then having the conversation, this point that Jason brings up around marijuana, I'm from New York and Jason's from New York, where New York was the marijuana arrest capital in the country. We were arresting more people for marijuana than could fit in Yankee Stadium every year. And yet, in this moment, where New York still hasn't legalized marijuana, but we have a medical marijuana place, they deemed it an essential service. And in the beginning of COVID, NYPD was still tweeting out pictures of them harassing people in the subway station and being like, we found a bag of weed. And everyone was like, it's a literally a pandemic. And so this is about not just redistributing the resources, but redistributing our priorities and recognizing that drugs should not be something that we deal with within the criminal legal system because it actually doesn't give people options. And that recognizing that that low hanging fruit is the excuse for people to engage and surveil and harm people of color and specifically black people, specifically black trans women who are consistently being harassed by law enforcement because of they're either trading sex or they're trading drugs. And so for us, you know, one of the things that we're saying is that if people want to get involved, they should follow Drug Policy Alliance. Um, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, join our list. We send out action alerts like literally every two days. Right now we're focused on pushing the congressional bill right now that does not end no-knock raids that killed Breonna Taylor, that continues to put money towards law enforcement, putting money towards treatment. And so we're putting out action alerts every day to really push the congressional Democrats to recognize that now is the time that if you're going to put forward congressional action, that it actually has to be about defunding. And if we want to say that we don't want another Breonna Taylor to happen, then we have to end the militarization of police in our country. And again, another perfect setup because Alec, all of this intersects with the work that you're doing. Um, I mean, this this group is obviously sympatico, but can you just take take it right from there? I think it's very important to understand that when we use words like defund the police, um, that word has a very particular meaning in context. And I think we're likely to see many mainstream politicians and even police officials start to try to co-opt what that word means. In the same way that now you have people like Mitt Romney saying Black Lives Matter. Well, when Mitt Romney says something like Black Lives Matter, I guarantee you he's not thinking about a fundamental shift, reparations, shifting the way that we invest in Black communities all over the country. That's not how Mitt Romney con conceives of that term. The same is true with, with something like defunding the police. Um, when Joe Biden talks about defunding the police, he's talking about increasing their funding for training 
and anti-bias measures and more money for body cameras to, to surveil black communities. And he's talking about slightly reducing the amount of money perhaps on giving police military equipment, but increasing overall the amount of money going to police. We need to be very, very clear. So I wanna just make one point crystal clear um, to the extent I'm able. When, when those of us in this movement talk about what needs to be done structurally, to challenge the structural racism and inequality at the core of our system of policing. And we use terms like defunding the police. We mean very directly slashing their budgets in the way that Patrice was talking about and taking that money and investing in the flourishing of the communities that have been preyed on by the police for centuries. And anyone who tries to tell you that defunding the police means something different than that, maybe it means investing in better resources for the cops to be better, those are people who are trying to get you to buy into a propagandistic notion of good cops and bad apples, right? And, and all we need to do is help the good cops, give them the resources so that we can find the bad apples and kick them off the force and prosecute them. But let me just say one thing, it's not bad apples who quintupled this country's incarceration rate since 1980. It's not bad apples who are caging people every single day for marijuana. It's not bad apples who invented the cash bail system that confines 400,000 human beings every single day in this country away from their families just because they can't make a monetary payment. It's not bad apples that purchases grenade launchers and tasers and tear gas um, and tanks for our police forces, right? These aren't things that bad apples are doing. These are what the good cops are doing with our money every single day. So we need to draw some lines in the sand. And if a politician or a local official or a leader is not talking about directly taking money from bloated police budgets and transferring them to communities, that person is not talking about anything that we should care about. Let me just give you an example. The city of Houston um, has a $930 million police budget. That is just the city of Houston. It sits in Harris County and the Harris County Sheriff's Office has another $561 million budget. Just in Harris County alone, the Houston metro area, there are 60 additional police forces, six zero. So, Harris County, Texas, just that one metro area is spending several billion dollars a year just on policing. I'm not even talking about prosecutors and prisons and tasers and tanks. I'm just talking about their yearly budgets. What kind of society looks at that and sees the complete divestment from the schools in Houston, from medical care, from safe, affordable housing? What kind of person looks at that and thinks it's reasonable? We need to fundamentally change where we think about all of this. And to do that, and this is where I think gets to your question about what we can all do to get involved. I think there's really two things. All of us need to, to do the work to learn about the history and the functions of these systems. We need to read people like Angela Davis. Everyone should read Our Prisons Obsolete as a starter, right? Check out Critical Resistance, just Google them. Start reading some of the materials they've been putting out for several decades, the work of Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Take a look at what Miriam Kaba, K-A-B-A, is writing for the last years on systems of mutual aid because it's communities setting up their own systems that respond to these problems that are going to be the alternatives that we turn to when we don't need police anymore, right? Systems that help people who don't have a home, systems that help people confront when someone hurts someone in our society. We don't need to cage the person, right? We need a system of transformative justice that understands accountability, but that also understands the trauma that our racist and unequal system of policing and punishment has been inflicting. So. I would encourage you to do that basic learning and reading, and then to look in your area, what are the groups that are doing mutual aid for their communities? Who are the people that are showing up for other people in their community, providing them the things that they need, providing things for undocumented people in your community, providing things for people that, that, that are houseless, 
providing things for people that, that need mental health care and, and other services and, and get involved in those in a really real way and start building the kinds of connections and relationships that actually are going to be the foundation for a much different, much safer, much more just society. And Bianca, um, I'm going to turn to you as well. And, you know, I've been calling you because I have so many friends calling me and saying my my 16 year old, my uh, whatever wants to volunteer, um, what can they do to help? You know, your work is so important because I think we have to, as you say, strangle the profit system, right? Because as long as there's money to be made by caging human beings, it's going to continue to happen. And at the moment, I think people would be shocked to find out how big that business really is and what percentage of our budgets it makes up. And you're, you know, one of the leading experts on that. So I'm going to turn to you and then we're going to take questions from the audience, which are starting to really roll in. So Bianca. So prisons are $80 billion industry. Policing is another $100 billion industry. Taxpayer money largely put out in some parts to the private sector and others to resources and staff. Um, and so in this amplification of the demand to defund police, we've been talking about five particular funding streams that police and prisons have. The first is legislative budgets. That's been the one that's been sort of talked about the most is moving money out of legislative budgets, which is the biggest source of money also, and therefore obviously incredibly important. The second is fines and fees. So something often that folks may not be aware of, but you think about this, it'll be really intuitive, traffic fines, um, realizing there's a reason that, you know, there's always a social commentary around quotas at the end of the month. It's because that is money that is used to fund police departments. Fees, that goes back to the commissions or the kickbacks that I was mentioning earlier around prison phone calls and things of that sort. Court fees. There are fees for legal representation, even if you are indigent. That is a misnomer that you can simply get free representation in most places. Third is civil asset forfeiture, something that far fewer folks are aware of. But basically, the police can come up in your house and take your stuff. And this really connects deeply to what Cassandra was talking about, which is in most cases, it's because of drug crimes. They can literally walk into your house and say, oh, there's a 60 inch television. We think you might be selling drugs. We're going to take your television. We don't have to arrest you, charge you, let alone convict you, and we can keep your things. And you can hire an attorney because in civil courts, you don't get a right to an attorney. Nevertheless, that it's actually your item that is on trial. And they can either keep your belongings or resell them. And those proceeds are used to fund police departments. In some cases, 30%, 50% of police departments funded on civil asset forfeiture. And studies have shown that civil asset forfeiture is dependent on more when legislative budgets are cut. So if you don't backstop these multiple different streams of funding, you can create some really awful byproducts. Um, the last two being service contracts. So this is something that Patrice was mentioning, contracts with public schools, contracts with corporations. So think about your favorite NBA stadium, the police that are stationed there, and that those stadiums that have contracts with police, the police get paid for those. That is part of their funding stream. And then finally, corporate support. A lot of corporations, your favorite corporations, the Verizon, the AT&T, Targets of the World, Amazon, are all funding 
police and they're doing it in one of two fashions. They might be funding National Sheriff's Association or the National Police Organization. And they might also be literally just building surveillance in cities and then handing the keys to that surveillance over to police. And that never hits a budget line. So it's really important that we actually look at all of these different parameters as we are working on this defund the police spectrum. And last thing on that is also what is not defunding the police is moving everything to electronic monitoring. Surveillance is part of policing, period. So like moving people out of cages and putting them on monitors is not the solution. And don't let anyone tell you that it is. In terms of the things that people can do, I want to echo Alex's first suggestion, which is educate yourself. There are people in this movement that have been doing this for years, decades. And so you're not going to learn it overnight. You're not going to learn it by joining a few webinars. Um, you're not going to learn it in one book. You're going to learn it by actually dedicating yourself to a practice of educating yourself, of reading and listening to people. As you're doing that, donate to organizations because you don't have the answers yet. Um, and there's a lot of organizations out there in large part right now, Black-led organizations that do have the answers and have the answers for their communities and you need to be donating to those. And so those are grassroots organizations, Black-led organizations, organizations doing systemic work, which lasts far past this moment. And those are organizations like Let's Roots, BYP 100, a Movement for Black Lives, Blackout Collective, organizations here, Worth Rises and others. Thirdly, uplift their actions. So if people are telling you that defund is the answer, don't argue, go learn donate, and then say defund is the answer. And so uplift those actions. If you want to pick up the phone and call your legislators, uplift their actions. Know that, you know, all of these things that Cassandra's mentioning, Patrice is mentioning, those are the things that you should be doing. In the next stimulus bill, we have a part of that bill um, that we are hoping to pass that will dramatically cut the cost of prison phone calls and end commissions to sheriffs and jails and prisons entirely, meaning that Phone calls will no longer be used to subsidize the police. Support those initiatives. Tell your legislators to support them. Fourthly, excuse me, I have two more and I'll be done. Um, fourthly is on volunteers. Uh, again, you don't know the answers. Call your legislators and uplift those demands that are out there. And secondly, Black-led organizations and organizations that do direct actions need bodies. And that is the most important thing that you can do as a you know, person of privilege, as like white folks and allies is be out there. Like when there is a call to put people out there, come out, support, be a body and, um, and support direct actions. And finally, and most importantly, I think in, in my view is do something that's sustainable. And that means it's not right now, it's not this week, it's not just this month but actually do things and commit to a practice that is supporting the movement um, in defense of Black lives and for criminal justice transformation and the abolition of prisons and jails. So if that's donating on a monthly and recurring basis, great. If that's you're going to call your legislators every week, that's it. Whatever you do, make sure that you're doing it for the long haul and you're not here with us just for this call. Yeah, and I'm going to say defund and divest because divesting from investments that you may have in your portfolios that you may not even know about or that your parents may have, speak to them and say, do you have any stocks in companies that make money on the caging of human beings? 
um, or any other system of oppression of human beings that, that exists in this country, divest. That's going to make people stand up and pay attention. And maybe we'll be able to create a resource after that to connect volunteers with volunteering opportunities. Um, now I'm going to turn to questions that we've gotten from um, people who are watching. And anyone who wants to take them can take them. So. Um, Autumn is asking, where can one find a comprehensive list of all companies that knowingly benefit from this system? Thank you, Autumn. So Worth Rises actually publishes a report annually. Um, we just published our 2020 version of the report last month. It is a report that exposes all of the corporations that are engaged in the prison industry and the prison industrial complex. It has over 4,000 companies on it. You can download the data directly and the data is really comprehensive. It will tell you not just the name of the corporation, but exactly what they're doing, who they're owned by, if they're not a standalone company, what their revenues might be and all of the sources. So if you're looking to Jason's point to divest and do those things, look closely. Um, and there's a few big names that I'll like mention. Think about Amazon, Google, Stanley Black & Decker. And you have some screwdrivers in there. They also make detention hardware for solitary cells. 3M, big supporter of prison labor. Aramark, which is probably in your schools and stadiums and all those places, government buildings. They also serve food in prisons. I've been sued a million times for maggot-filled, rodent-filled like food. There are many companies in your portfolios, in your parents' portfolios, in your friends' portfolios, in your pensions, if that, you know, is your, in your school endowments, all related to those companies. Okay. And of course we haven't said it yet, but I'm going to say it now and vote. Don't just vote in the national elections, vote in local elections. That's so important. Vote in your DA races, vote in your state Senate, anything, because those are the people that drive the change upwards. Okay. Next question. This is from Victoria. And she asked, how can we start to educate the public about how police and prosecutorial immunity go hand in hand. Patrice, do you want to take this one? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, one way is having conversations, but I also think another way is working with organizations that are having those conversations. Lots of times people forget that the way we create change is by joining something. Um, we can't individually change a system, but we can change the system when we work with organizations like many that are on the panel right now. Um, we can also send you a list of orgs in your own community. Join something right now. I think that's the best thing that people can do and be a part of the efforts that people are, are making happen. And if you feel like there isn't an, a group that's actually doing the thing you want, then figure out how to build it yourself. Like you did, yeah. And if someone was gonna say, well, I want Patrice to tell me one organization I should join today, what would it be? No, I can't do one. Every organization plays such a powerful role. But if you're talking about like DAs and police and you want to actually challenge that, I think it depends. Like what side of the work you want to do? Do you want to do work that's just educating people or do you want to do work where you're getting those terrible DAs out of office and then bringing new people in? Um, I'm not good at the like, give me one because I just think there's such a nuanced approach to it. But there's lots of orgs that are taking on DAs. World Justice Pack is one of them. I work with them. They've taken on multiple DAs and they've won a lot of races. Here in Los Angeles, if you live here, we have a DA race that's happening. Jackie Lacey must go. And George Gascon is running up against her and we like him and we've endorsed him. So just it's really important that you know what your local elections are going to be and who's up against each other and researching them. Okay, next question is, are there any significant efforts being made regarding legislation of civilian review boards with actual power 
that oversee police internal affairs division. This comes from someone who's not a neophyte. Okay, um, Alec, that sounds like you. I have not heard of anything that I would term significant. Again, that term is very loaded though. I mean, I'm not a big fan of that kind of intervention in any way. I'm much more in favor of just dramatically reducing the size of police departments. I think it's a really fraught business to say we're gonna improve police departments by giving a little more oversight by investigating, by giving more resources to other police to investigate those police, right? I think if you wanna stop police brutality, if you wanna invest in communities, you reduce the size, you reduce the number of interactions they're having with people, you, you decriminalize, you reduce their ability to intervene in a negative way in people's lives. Smaller police forces are gonna do a lot less of the things that we don't want police doing. So for me, I think it's interesting that many people in the establishment for years have been focusing on interventions like that. And the police unions have won even those battles. I mean, police unions have prevented even the most basic interventions like civilian review boards with, with subpoena power. Police unions have blocked even the most um, seemingly mild interventions to police accountability. But that doesn't mean that we should still be pushing for those things above other things. We should be pushing in this moment for much bolder, much more visionary change to the structure of who police are and what they do and why we need them then we should only be using them to the extent someone is able to tell us a very, very good reason why police need to be doing this particular thing. And they don't need to be doing anything else. And so I think in terms of all of the reforms that are being pushed, you know, the, one of the current reforms that police unions are most upset with is this independent power of civilian review boards to fire officers or subpoena them or to conduct investigations. But that's sort of because the police unions haven't yet appreciated the, the moment that we're in, which is actually potentially, if we do things right, much more threatening to the very notion that there could be 51,000 employees of the New York Police Department. There, there shouldn't be 51,000 NYPD employees, right? And as a first step, let's cut it down to 30,000. Then we can start talking about scrutinizing and holding those 30,000 people accountable. Cassandra, I want to ask you a question because, and then I'll get it back to the questions from the audience, but, you know, and you talked very eloquently about how much of a role drugs play in police brutality, right? Because it's the start of so many interactions or it's the rationale for so much brutality. And many people say, well, I can understand legalizing pot, but legalizing drugs, that's a little too much for me. But we know from the, what happened in Portugal and other places when they have decriminalized all drugs, there's not a social scientist alive who can point to any deleterious effect. Or, or am I wrong about that? No, you're not. I mean, I think decriminalizing drugs in general removes an excuse or lessens an excuse, right? And so it creates this thing where law enforcement isn't supposed to do this anymore. And then we're able to start understanding, like, what is your role, right? Like, you're not playing this role for drugs. So what are you actually doing? And when we saw Portugal in 2001, violence went down, addiction went down, Young people didn't start using drugs more. Bloodborne illnesses also went down. People moving into treatment went up. You know, what's actually really interesting about this is like right now in the US, Drug Policy Action is working with groups on the ground in Oregon for Initiative 44, where we are working to decriminalize all drugs and also building up the health infrastructure because Oregon is the 50th state when it comes to substance use treatment access. So they are the worst when it comes to people getting access to treatment. And what we're saying is, because what the 1994 crime bill did was say, we have to criminalize drugs really hard so we can give you access to treatment. And what they did was criminalize us really hard and didn't actually give us treatment. And there's this thing about people who are homeless or mentally ill 
or who have um, substance use problems is like, in order for them to get access to treatment, they have to be involved in the criminal legal system. And so what we're saying is like, being involved with the criminal legal system should not be a barrier or an entryway into getting access. And so decriminalizing drugs removes law enforcement from that role. And to the question earlier about civil review boards, I think it's also important to realize that individuals are the civil review board. And so going back to Patrice's point and to your question about volunteer opportunities, people need to cop watch. People need to join cop watch crews around this country. The reason why Black Lives Matter is so big and the reason why George Floyd is so big is because we're watching. We have educated ourselves to realize that seeing police officers interact with people is a reason for you to stop and for you to record. Just in the same way that the state is surveilling us, we need to surveil them. And you see how these videos, we see the video that we got for Ahmaud Aubrey, the video that we got for Ramarley Graham, the video we got for George Floyd, change the conversation because police can lie and they lie often and it's not illegal for them to lie. And so if you are looking for things to donate to or you actually wanna put your body in this movement, not just in protests or in groups, join a cop watch group. It has changed the way people operate because now we can say, no, that's not what happened, officer. You actually had your foot on that man's neck for nine minutes, as opposed to what they usually do when it comes to drugs, where they do an autopsy. And if you have weed in your system or if you have fentanyl or methamphetamine, then they get to say, well, it's drugs that killed them but it wasn't, it was police interactions. And so cop watching is super important and it's an amazing way to provide volunteer opportunities. And it really helps people on the ground because they're doing it for you and I and getting more people entering into the cop watch tradition will save all of us. Right, there's even a hashtag AFTP, always film the police. So you can go to that hashtag. Thousands of people are uploading videos every day now. And it's so, it's, it's changing the entire culture. Um, I just saw a question come in from my own brother, Peter Flom, who's a PhD in psychometrics. So this should be interesting. Uh, he says, given how spread out the police are with state police, city police, local police, and so on, how can local legislation or other measures apply widely? I mean, I can start, I can just say, I mean, the vast bulk of police officers in this country are, are local police department officers, right? So there are tens of thousands of police officers just in New York City. There are tens of thousands of officers in Chicago, LA, Houston, Dallas, you know, all of the big cities have gigantic police departments with enormous budgets. And when we talk about policing, we are by and large talking about those police forces. Now, of course, every single state has various versions, multiple versions in most places of state police. Um, all of these people call themselves law enforcement officers, which I think is a term of propaganda, you know, designed to shield the fact that they're only enforcing some laws against some people some of the time. But this entire sort of law enforcement industry, your brother is correct, there's, there's federal police. In Washington, D.C., we have dozens of federal police forces, but they all pale in size to the local metropolitan police department. And so make no mistake, local city and county governments have direct budgetary control over their local police forces and local sheriff's departments. And in every single town and county in this country, the people that you elect for those positions can slash the budgets of their police and their sheriff's departments and give that money to affordable housing, mental health care, treatment, theater, poetry, music, athletic programs for children, all the things that people actually need and want in their communities. And, and that is something that can happen in every single community. Yeah, I'd also add that there is a big partnership between local police and federal police. 
that needs to be addressed and that by changing local politics and policies can affect national policing. So um, a great example is sanctuary cities and um, cities that are refusing to cooperate with ICE, right? Saying, well, we're not going to enforce those things and therefore the federal reach becomes a lot more limited and enforcement at the federal level becomes a lot harder. Similarly, civil asset forfeiture is actually a very common practice between federal and local police. So to Cassandra's work in point, there's this misnomer, right? The majority of people are in prison for drugs, not the case. However, is or is similar to the case in the federal system. And so federal police actually really do rely on local police. In fact, there's a federal program that allows them to take 80% of civil asset forfeiture proceeds, and it incentivizes local police to work with the federal system when the federal system is looking for someone. So there's a lot of relational aspects between those two. That means by changing local policies, you can impact even how federal law enforcement is done. Um, and then the last thing I'll sort of say on that is just that jails are also local. They're local sheriffs and counties run jails. And some of the most egregious exploitation happens at the jail level, not actually necessarily at the state level. Um, so those phone calls, when we talk about like the price of a phone call, the national average at the jail is over $5.75. National average across prisons is $1.42. And so actually looking at local policies is really critical and quite frankly for organizations a lot harder because there's so many. And so work that can be done at that level by ordinary citizens without the work of advocacy can be really impactful. Yeah, it's crazy to think even going back to what Cassandra was saying that we now know because his, his own aide admitted this that Nixon declared the war on drugs, not because he cared about drugs. Nobody cared about drugs back then, but he wanted a war on black people and hippies and he couldn't call it that. So it was really a marketing thing that he did. And it of course led to this unbelievably disastrous situation, including the fact that we now live in a police state. That's and we right. also know that drug arrests are over 50% people of color. And then it goes up. The number of prosecutions is, is close to 65% and the number of convictions is over 75% of people of color. And I think it goes back to one of the things that Patrice said earlier about the low-hanging fruit. We have to have a conversation as to why the Cook County Jail is the largest treatment provider in the country. Largest drug treatment provider in the country comes out of a jail. In New York, Department of Correction was the largest treatment provider. So like our police state you have contracts, not just with Aramark, you have contracts with treatment facilities. So the police state, everyone's making money based on marginalized people that are struggling with everyday situations. And so defunding police, it goes back to Bianca, it's like defunding is also looking at the role that capitalism is playing and the industry that we have built on the suffering of people. And, and, and let's not forget in all of this that the people that are paying for all of this are taxpayers, right? It's not like this money falls out of the sky. We are paying $175,000 to keep someone in Rikers Island. You could actually put somebody in the Four Seasons on 57th Street for the same amount of money. And, they, and we're paying to keep them in, in Rikers Island. But it's us paying for all of this, paying for the, when you hear Bianca talk about the police department numbers, not tens of billions, but hundreds of billions of dollars that we're spending. And that could be going to educate kids, to healthcare, to all the things that we actually need. But I also wanna make the point that going back to what I was saying before, not only do we pay to incarcerate people as taxpayers, but we also deprive our own society of the money that they would be paying in taxes if they were free and working. And we deprive them of the ability to make money in the future because we discriminate against 
those very same people when they come out of prison and they can't get a job and therefore they can't support their family and can't pay taxes. And then we wonder why we have recidivism in this country as well. It's a vicious cycle, but we can break it and we can break it together. So we have one or two more questions. Someone said, it has often been said, those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but furthest from the resources and power. No one is closer to the resources and the power of the criminal justice system than those in the field of law. Yet paradoxically, no one is more restrained from accessing and entering the field than justice impacted. Is there anything more impactful than empowering and equipping our people? Wow, that's a lofty question. Um, it's, more, it's more of a statement than a question, so maybe it's yeah, okay. I think oh, it's actually really easy to answer. No, there's nothing more powerful. Like we have to equip our people. It's very yeah. clear and true. Yeah, and I, I mean, think the most powerful thing to me in our work is not just equipping people with resources, but giving them the tools to stand in their own power and agency. I think the most powerful relationships that I have in working at Drug Policy Alliance is working hand in hand with drug user unions. So people who use drugs and are criminalized every single day direct our agenda and we plan and we conspire and we and we build and move together um, and we get them resources. So, you know, organizations like Vocal New York are doing amazing work at multiple intersections. Um, and so if folks are thinking about who who is you know, closest to the problem, but furthest from the, the resources, I would look for drug user unions because they're doing a lot of the works at the intersections. And I'm going to say now, as we as we go to closing, um, it's it's one very simple step is to follow Worth Rises. It's worthrises.org or at Worth Rises on Instagram. Of course, Drug Policy Alliance, very simple, very straightforward. The people who are fighting the war against the war on drugs with all of its miserable tentacles and, and nefarious goals. Follow Drug Policy Alliance on whatever social media you use. Civil Rights Corps. Again, if you just go to even their Instagram or their site, you'll see it's almost a one-stop resource for figuring out how you can get involved, how you can make your voice heard, how you can activate your friends and energize. And of course, Black Lives Matter. I think Patrice had a six o'clock, so she had to jump off, but uh, no one's going to forget those words and no one has any complication or, or, or confusion as to how to go to find resources on Can I just site. say on Patrice's behalf, since she's not here, also to file Dignity and Power Now, um, which is the organization that Patrice founded after BLM and currently runs. And their Twitter and Instagram is Power Dignity. It's actually inverse. So. And of course, vote, vote, vote. Um, we do have a couple of minutes left. And so I'd like to just have a quick closing. If we can do a lightning round. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Um, I'm Jason Flom. Uh, this has been a presentation of Wrongful Conviction Podcasts. Please do follow us as well. It's Wrongful Conviction Podcast on Instagram, or if you want to follow me, it's at It's Jason Flom, but you probably already know that. And thank you all for watching and for getting involved and for caring. And now I'm going to turn it over to our uh, wonderful uh, group of panelists to just share their closing thoughts and any, any action steps that you want to take, any, anybody to follow, anybody to donate to, whatever it is, we'll close out. We'll go uh, this time in reverse order. So we'll go Bianca, Alec, Cassandra, and finally, Patrice. So... Bianca. Great. Well, thank you, Jason, for obviously pulling this together uh, and for asking us all to join and for uplifting um, the calls to action that everyone here um, is uplifting. Um, so I just want to reiterate calls to action that are being made by the Movement for Black Lives and Black-led organizations. Please also follow them 
join their actions. And in particular, they are organizing around Juneteenth next week and really trying to center uh, that work and focusing that is, I think, really important. And the last thing I'll say is, again, just reiterating, whatever you do, make sure you do it sustainably. Make sure you are committed to this for more than this just one moment. Okay, Alec? I think it's really important for people to understand that we are about to be immersed in a full-on propaganda war. And there's going to be a lot of people who have an interest in shielding the true functions of what the police do, what our entire criminal punishment bureaucracy does. And so I think it's very important that you educate yourself about those systems and keep a few rules of thumb in mind. You know, if someone is proposing something that doesn't reduce the resources we're putting into the police and the punishment bureaucracy more generally, it's not a good reform, okay? If someone is proposing something that retains the power and discretion and control of actors within that system, prosecutors, police, judges, jailers, that's not a good reform. We need to be transferring authority and power into communities that are accountable to themselves and not to this metastasized bureaucracy. And another thing that I think is just absolutely critical for people to, to keep in mind is that this system is founded on a society of racial injustice. And it's just not possible to have any of these conversations without talking about how we're going to repair those decades and centuries of injustice. The policing system, the punishment bureaucracy, it all exists on a structure of a very unequal society. And unless people are having that kind of deep conversation, they're not actually meaningfully engaging in these issues and they won't be able to solve them. No amount of discussion about bias training and body cameras and community policing, all of these propagandistic words that you're probably hearing a little bit of in, in the media. A lot of people are promoting, for example, that police rewrite their use of force policies, right? Or that they warn people before they shoot them. These are some of the demands that are being made. These are some of the things that the Democrats are now including in their justice and policing bill, which by the way is nonsense. We need to be focusing on structural change, on changing the priorities. Like Patrice mentioned the people's budget in LA. Take a look at that document. See what a truly visionary budget document for a local government looks like and see how much money is being devoted to things like policing versus things like medical treatment, housing, and education. And let's get ourselves to a society like that. Thank you. And don't forget to pick up Alex's book, Usual Cruelty. I've bought hundreds of copies, of it, which I give out like candy. So um, Usual Cruelty is the book. And Cassandra, we're going to leave it to you to close out our Power to the People forum. And thank you all again for being here. Thanks, Jason. The thing that I will ask folks to do is to close their eyes quickly um, and to really think about the last time you felt safe. Um, what do you see? Who's around you? What does it sound like? Most of the time when organizers, you can open your eyes, most of the time when organizers do this, we, we listen to people and at no point does anyone ever say a police was there. There were sirens, there were protests. Most of the times people smell cookies, they are there with their loved ones, they're there with their family. When people ask us why we're calling to defund the police, when people are calling for us to say, why say Black Lives Matter, is because we believe that everyone should feel that feeling of safety, that they should be surrounded by loved ones and that they should have that feeling of comfort and security. And that too many people right now don't have that feeling. Um, and that is what we're trying to get to. 
Um, and so, you know, simple actions that folks can take right now, um, going back to Bianca's point, is text DEFEND in all caps to 90975. And then you'll be on the text thread for the Movement for Black Lives, which is calling to defund police in defense of Black lives. And then to Alex's point, if you want to imagine this idea of what we can do with a shrunken police force, go to 8-2-Abolition, 8, the number 8, toabolition.com. There are eight principles that they've laid out there. And you'll see that this conversation is about, you know, defunding police, demilitarizing our communities, decriminalizing crimes associated with survival. All these things are things that are possible that we can get to if we are willing to have the conversation about what we want to get to, which is safety and security and love for everyone. This movement can't alone run on rage. It has to run on this idea that we can love each other and be our best selves together. So Patrice, before you start, um, I have a question that just came in and it struck me. So I wanted to ask you, it's a question from Danielle. She asks, you have done so much work to even get people to say the words Black Lives Matter. How are you feeling from Danielle? Oh, you got a smile, Danielle. <laughs> very kind of you. Um, you know, there's two two things I'm feeling. I'm uh, a, a deep um, grief that it's taken this long for the country and the world to to recognize the humanity of Black people, and I think there's still a lot more work we have to do to um, bring that into practice. Uh, but also, I think a lot of gratitude for this moment. I think we're in an, an, an amazing opening to have new kinds of conversations. But also, I think number three, the role that many of us in this movement play, we are going to be attacked, and people need to understand that. When we start to win as a movement, the right attacks us. We're already started being attacked in the last 24 hours by Candace Owens, a right wing operative of Donald Trump. She's a black woman, so it confuses people. But politics are politics. And I think that um, as this starts to happen, right? So it's like everybody's saying Black Lives Matter, including major corporations. Um, we have to be willing to stand up for black leaders and black leadership. And so I'm grateful. Good, say Black Lives Matter. And will you defend me when the right starts to attack me? Or will you allow them to sow seeds of uncertainty. And I think that's, you know, seven years ago, I didn't realize that I was going to have right-wing people attack me. I didn't realize they were going to call me a terrorist. I didn't realize there was going to be a full-on scale attack against BLM. And there was. And seven years later, we're in a very similar position. And so I think it's powerful to hear BLM out of people's mouths, but I think it'll be more powerful to make sure that people support us and defend us. Okay. Thank you, Cassandra, Bianca, Alec, and Patrice for being here. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been a presentation of Wrongful Conviction Podcast. And thank you for that wonderful closing. And we'll see you all in the movement. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongfulconviction and on Facebook at wrongfulconvictionpodcast. 
Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.